Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, host of GPB's Lawmakers, sitting in for Bill Nygut today. Most of Georgia's final coronavirus restrictions came to the end yesterday. They came to an end, and that was after Governor Brian Kemp signed an executive order on Friday, which removed requirements on restaurants, bars, child care facilities, conventions, and live performance venues. And the order also seeks to restrict the state's public school di- school districts from imposing mask mandates for students and employees, although it doesn't outright ban them, and we'll talk about that. This latest rollback of government COVID precautions comes after Governor Kemp had already eased many coronavirus restrictions and guidance in April, ending effectively safety guidelines for gyms, movie theaters, barbershops, and more. And now with the COVID vaccine available and about one-third of the state having been vaccinated, the governor's latest order maintains safety precautions in only a few facilities, including nursing homes, long care long-term care facilities and public schools. And we're going to talk about all of this and a whole lot more today. And I have this great panel of uh, ladies with me today. It's it's the Ladies' Sleigh Day, and I'm excited about that. <laughs> really great with that. And with me is Patricia Murphy, who I absolutely love because we got to work together on um, lawmakers. But she is the political reporter and columnist for the AJC, of course, the Atlanta journal Conference. Constitution. We're going to slay a little bit today, huh, Patricia? <laughs> yes, we are. We always say the ladies will slay when Bill's away. That's it. Uh, we, yes, we hope Bill is enjoying his time away, but it's wonderful to be with you, Donna. Thank yeah. you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. And Raisa uh, Habersham, watchdog, I love that, watchdog, and investigative reporter with the Savannah Morning News, you're with us today. And from Savannah, and you're saying it's a little bit rainy down there, huh? Um, not yet. It'll yeah. rain tomorrow. It's a bit cloudy right now, so I'll keep my eyes out for that. Well, you're bringing sunshine to the show, so thank you so much for that. And, <laughs> thank you. And Dr. Karen Owen, I haven't had a chance to work with you before, but I'm excited that you're on the show. You're professor professor of political science at the University of West Georgia. Thanks for joining us. It is my pleasure to be here. I look forward to this. The day after the holiday, and we're all hyped up and ready to go. So I'm excited about this. So, Patricia, let's start with the governor lifting restrictions. Uh, it effectively lifts all restrictions, uh, doesn't it? He He's actually getting out of the COVID restrictions business, it sounds like. Yeah, it really does. And um, because the vaccine is so widely available, I would say just about every Georgian who wants the vaccine has had the opportunity to um, register for and get the vaccine, um, with the exception, I think, certainly of uh, people in the rural areas of the state. Um, uh, and so Kemp has said the time for this emergency order is over. There is no health emergency um, in the state anymore, the governor says. And so that means that um, restaurants, movie theaters, gyms, um, childcare facilities, which I think is so interesting, um, really will effectively have no more COVID orders. So you know, for all intents and purposes, um, 
uh, life can resume as normal. Um, of course, COVID is still in the community. Um, it is, people are still dying from COVID, um, but the governor said the time for specific government mandates are over, and that's where we are now. And I think we'll, like with everything with COVID, we're in a sort of wait and see, watch and learn mode with this, with this new move from Governor Kemp. Yeah, I think each time the restrictions are lifted, there's there's a level of nervousness with everybody about what does this mean? What should I do? That kind of thing. And right. Raisa, I, I know that local municipalities, public school officials, they this is kind of still a point of contention. And, and we remember early on how Savannah's mayor instituted the mask mandate early on. So wh- what are you thinking right now in terms of this this new mandate? You know, for this new mandate, taking I'm not away sure the mandate, that, I should say. Yeah, sorry. Oh, no, you're fine. Um, let me unmute. Um, for this new mandate, I'm not sure that businesses will um, lift their mask mandates. Um, I think that in places that I've been across Savannah, I've seen businesses say you still have to have the mask on to enter the business. Um, and I think a lot of that, and most of the ones I speak are Black-owned business because we're still a vulnerable group for COVID. So I'm not sure that that will change. Um, when I read the changes to the school district, I, I'll be honest, I was a little bit confused because while it, it felt like he was rest- wasn't necessarily restricting their use of masks, it felt like he was restricting their use of masks. It was worded confusingly, at least for me. Um, but there's nothing that will stop a parent from sending their child to school with a mask. Um, we recently published our education project at the Savannah Morning News. Um, and you've had parents who changed school districts in part to have in-person learning and to not be, um, to be able to wear a mask freely. Um, but you've also had some that will say, you know, I'll homeschool my child because it's safer or I'll opt to do online learning for my child because it's safer. So I think there's still opportunity for individual choice, but it doesn't negate the fact that with each mandate, there's still some um, concern there. Yeah. So, so Karen, I, I, the feeling is that this may not, um, when it comes to schools, have any real teeth what the governor has um, mandated here, or what he's talking about. Yes. And I, I, I think what, you know, right, you just pointed out was kind of a little bit of mixed messaging, right? You had to kind of really read into the executive order versus kind of what was initially put out by media and others who were talking about this and what specifically the governor, you know, is really saying is the government, the state government is pulling back on the mandate. But I guess, you know, local officials still have their ability, especially the public schools, to decide exactly what is needed. And I think it's interesting at this point, right? We're in going into summer. So we have all of our children at home and summer camps and doing different things. But then what will it look like towards the end of July? And I think, again, it'll be what those public health numbers say, how well the state is doing. Are more people vaccinated? Are more children 12 to 17 vaccinated? And I think that's a critical point that the state will have to address for help with the locals. But I think, you know, Governor Kemp has been one of these governors where he is involved a little bit in local government, but he also walks a different line where he allows the local governments to have that freedom. And that's, you know, really tough when you're dealing with the crises that have. And, you know, Donna, I think the interesting point you made was the nervousness, right? Like, 
it feels like after this Memorial Day weekend, we are really back to normal. I mean, people are at pools, they're out at outdoor dining, and it feels great. But there's still this little bit of anxiety because we do know that the virus is there. And we have and hear of people who are still suffering from this. And I think that's kind of where we're at is this nervousness and where will we be in just a few more weeks or months. Yeah. And uh, Patricia, I'm thinking uh, a lot of people are thinking about this past holiday. They had a good time. People, you know, drove or flew and and visited family. People got together and all. But will we see any changes in numbers, COVID numbers in two weeks? You know, I think people are going to be really paying attention to that. I think that's exactly right. And um, the reality is that even though there is now looks like there's going to be a uniform standard for the state of not having the having um, government requirements. Not everybody is in the same boat when it comes to COVID. Um, and I'll say for us, our children are under 12. There is no mandate. Uh, there's no um, vaccine rather available for children under 12. Um, so even the idea of schools lifting mask mandates, um, specifically the governor's order said, that schools cannot use the emergency, the health emergency as a reason to have a mask mandate. They could have it as part of their dress code, for example. Um, but I think everybody knows that um, one set of parents doesn't make the same set, set of choices as other sets of parents, even though they're all in the same school. Um, and that kids really like to do what their friends are doing. And so it, um, I will be interested and have some concerns about what the fall is going to look like for younger children because COVID does spread quickly um, among children um, if they're not wearing masks. And um, we know children can get sick. They don't get sick as frequently or as severely, but without a vaccine, we just don't know. Um, And so I think the messaging is going to be really important. And to your point, paying attention to the data and the science of this is going to be crucial. And I think that um, Governor Kemp has always been a little ahead of the curve on lifting these mandates. Um, Certainly, we were among the first to reopen for business in Georgia. Um, I think it went better than many people expected. Um, But also, uh, because uh, 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 we know, he knows that his governorship really relies on the health of the state and the ability to get out of this, even for businesses, um, he's going to be watching those numbers carefully as well. Yeah. And to your point, in in the past week, we've seen the rate of new infections in the state reaching new lows, lows that we haven't seen since the first weeks of the pandemic in in April of 2020. That that is good news Um, in terms of capacity. 27 percent of ventilators are in use. Around 75 percent of the inpatient beds are in use. But the good but with that good news, does that mean we're out of the woods? You know, researchers saying 30, only 31 percent of Georgians are inoculated against COVID, Um, 3.3 million residents or so. And that we're um, we're when we compare ourselves to other states, only Alabama and Mississippi have a lower vaccination rate. So we're still in in um, in dangerous uh, territory, as some would uh, say, in terms of the possibility that um, we're past all of this, right, Raisa? We, we may still have a ways to go, and we don't know. And we've got to, I think it's just taking a little bit at a, at a time, trying to figure out whether or not um, whether or not we can breathe a sigh of relief over this and say it's over for us. I think the real test for us will be flu season. Um, that's something to always worry about because that's probably when you'll see an uptick in cases, Um, combined with the flu. 
Um, I think to Patricia's point, you know, her children are younger. There is no vaccination available for them quite yet. I think that will, if, if that becomes possible ahead of the school year or towards the beginning of the school year, we might see an increase in vaccination numbers. Um, but again, we still have to worry about the flu season and what that kind of looks like going forward um, for younger people, but also older adults because they're also vulnerable as well. Um, I know myself, speaking personally for me, I know I don't get sick as often, but I do always worry about someone like my husband. He's a high school math teacher. Um, he gets sick pretty easily. So there is concern there for me in that area. Um, but I'm hoping that once there is some sort of vaccination for younger children um, and hoping that my husband does teach at a school, which most of the students are fully vaccinated, um, that that'll kind of ease my concerns and parents like Patricia's concerns. Yeah. You know, you talked about the flu season. We had a real we didn't see the numbers um, that we usually see of people getting the flu this past year because they wore their masks. And so when people take off their masks, we were uh, expecting to see a difference where maybe we'll see those numbers go up. And so I know that's a concern for a lot of people. And it'll be strange to try to figure out whether or not you have COVID or the flu or whatever. Remember, mm -hmm. we went through that before. Um, I do want to talk about herd immunity a little bit. And then we're hearing, you know, we, we've been focused so much on trying to get to this herd immunity. And yet we're finding out now, and, and Karen, I want to talk to you a little bit about this. Um, it's it's not maybe the way we should, the goal we're looking for maybe, that herd immunity, you know, we're so focused on it, but maybe it's just the vaccine and particular, making sure we get as many people vaccine, vaccinated as possible is what we should be looking for more than herd immunity? Well, and I think if we think about the idea of herd immunity, right, it became politicized. It became a talking point of the political parties. And, you know, sitting on this panel, you know, my thoughts are always turning towards the politics part because I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a scientist in that regard. But you're right. Like The discussion has been, let's get to herd immunity, but that post, that goalpost kind of moved, right? Was it going to be 60%, 70% of the population? Some discussions that it's got to be 90% before we're there. You know, so a lot of different people were hearing different numbers. And is that the focus or is the focus, like you were saying, on vaccination and making sure people feel very comfortable with the vaccines, that they should get vaccinated, that their children will be okay, like to really look at the science. And if anything, you know, we've recently heard local governments talking about doing smaller campaigns to really talk to their communities about getting vaccinated because that's very important for them to reach a level where they feel like normal life can resume and people can feel comfortable where they are. And I think that's a discussion that the state and our local governments may need to have is how do they shift their focus to talking about the safety the effectiveness of these vaccines and that people should feel comfortable doing that. And then also be aware of those people who've had COVID and survived and did okay with it, that they may not rush out and want to get a vaccine because they feel like they still have antibody protection. And we have to be aware of how we talk to those individuals and let them, you know, know what they can be comfortable doing in society. I think there's a lot to this ideas surrounding who's protected, what's okay, and just continuing to kind of take each day with 
I guess, the focus of thinking more about public health and not politics. Like, how do we as a community protect each other and not worry so much about the divisiveness if this is a political issue? Yeah, and I I do think the challenge of messaging gets a lot harder, honestly, as these numbers go down, trying to convince somebody that they should get a vaccine that they may or may not be comfortable with um, as the imperative feels less urgent, as they as um, hospitals are not full. It's not leading the news every night anymore. Um, uh, my sense is that it becomes harder and harder to convince um, the remaining people who don't want it that they really need it and that their community needs them to get it in order to prevent um, anything from getting worse. Um, a really interesting story that I had a chance to report, I told um, Bill about this. I went to uh, Randolph County, um, which is uh, in southwest Georgia, very rural, very small. Um, it's where Cuthbert, Georgia is. And um, I went out with a group of volunteers who were going just door to door and knocking on people's doors um, to see if they would like to get the vaccine and could they help them register for that. Um, and these were uh, low income, mostly minority. Um, and they said absolutely they would want to get vaccinated. They just did not have the technology to get themselves registered. They could not just pick up their phone and Google, where do I get the vaccine? And so um, for all of these numbers, there are there are often uh, detailed stories behind why people have not gotten vaccinated yet. And so it's really important for the state to really drill down into those communities and understand is it a lack of willingness, a lack of transportation, a lack of information? I think they're going to have to really start to narrow cast into why people haven't been vaccinated. And if the goal is to get to um, a majority of vaccinations, um, they're going to have to really start to narrow cast this instead of broadcast it. Yeah. So what we're hearing is that to get to herd immunity, it is a combination of the vaccinations and so the infections that people have had. Um, the, the thing that also people aren't talking about, and my daughter just happens to work for one of the healthcare agencies, and they are all talking about boosters already. Um, she's, they, they've already sent out messages that um, those are the people who were um, and had vaccines back in January may see themselves getting booster shots coming up in the fall. And that's something that we're not talking about a lot in, in terms of where where we might be. So that that's something I think we have to think about a little bit more. Um, th- but in terms of this herd immunity, I just wonder, um, are you hearing uh, are you hearing Raisa people talking about it in terms of they're 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 fixated on the numbers? I mean, because I, I know that I have people who are saying we're just not you know, they're, they're saying we should be here and we're at 31 percent in Georgia. That's a good question. I specifically have not heard that. I think there's still, um, as Patricia mentioned, um, issues with access. Um, I think the other concern, as you mentioned, is the booster. Um, and, and speaking of the booster, I'm wondering how many of those that did get the shot in January will remember to go and get their booster as well. I think um, part of it, as Karen mentioned, was the um, messaging, is uh, some of the messaging behind vaccinations and, you know, why it's important that you need to get it. Um, and beyond that, why a booster shot is necessary as well. I think a lot of people view the vaccination the same way you would if you were getting it for MMR. And that's not the case. It's almost similar in form to if you were to get the flu shot, which is annual. Um, and so I haven't heard too much about herd immunity. Um, here, you know, it's 
it's different in my opinion. I think it's different because I'm coming from Atlanta, have moved to Savannah, and you still have people who do social resistance. You still have people who do, you know, wear their masks um, and are very protective. Um, I think what I've seen mostly is people insisting that they are going to continue to, um, regardless of how many vaccinations people have, how many, if Georgia gets the numbers up, they're going to continue to wear a mask, safeguard themselves against um, disease and sickness. So I think that's mostly what I'm seeing just from the chatter online and what I hear or what I see when I do go out in um, grocery stores or frequent some businesses. Yeah. And when I talk about the what, what my daughter received an email from her job about is the healthcare profession. So it may be we, we're not sure. Maybe just the healthcare profession is going to focus on those boosters in the beginning. So we'll there's still a lot of uncertainty when it comes to all of this. And we'll be talking about it in the weeks and months to come, I'm sure. But right now, I think we need to get to our first break. So stay with us. We'll be right back on Political Rewind. Raisa, uh, let's talk about your piece in the Savannah Morning News on the upcoming trial uh, in the Ahmad Aubrey murder. This is Political Rewind. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, host of GPB's Lawmakers, filling in for Bill Nygut. I'm joined today by Raisa Habersham, Dr. Karen Owen, and Patricia Murphy. They, I'm so glad they're here. We're having a good conversation. Now let's jump back into the conversation a little bit. Raisa, you took the time to speak to several Brunswick residents about the trial of the McMichaels um, and you, you know, for the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. And we're when we say McMichaels, we're talking about Greg and um, Travis McMichael, of, uh, of course, the father and son accused in this. And some of the folks you spoke with were optimistic, but some were nervous. Talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, so I drove down to Brunswick. Uh, for those that don't know, Brunswick is an hour south of Savannah. Um, so I drove down to Brunswick um, just to speak with residents to get their sense of how they thought the trial might play out, um, especially following the Chauvin verdict. Um, you know, were they optimistic? Were they cautiously optimistic? Um, were they nervous? Or were they still, you know, waiting on pins and needles? Um, some of the optimism came from the federal indictment um, that was handed down, I want to say, late April, um, and with federal hate crime charges against the McMichaels and William uh, Bryant, who's also uh, charged in connection with the case. Um, and so some felt like because there were federal charges handed down that, you know, this is probably pretty serious. This is this sends a certain message that, you know, they're not going to get away with it. Um, some were still nervous um, about the outcome because even in the Chauvin trial, you know, you had that juror who admitted that he attended a Black Lives Matter protest. Um, and also the location of the trial made some um nervous as well, um, considering that can the, can the McMichaels and can uh, William Bryan get a fair trial if it's in Glenn County? Um, so many emotions have been running high around this case and around this trial, um, with many hoping for a guilty verdict. Um, so there have been, there were concerns to raise around that. Um, I, I will say this, those that were optimistic uh, were Black women. Those that were nervous were Black men. And i I'd say that because I know oftentimes when we cover um, 
cases uh, of black men being killed at the hands of an officer or a, a white man, um, they tend to be black men. Um, and so them being cautiously optimistic just stood out to me because I know that some people are still holding their breath in the George Floyd trial. And you think about instances well before then, um, some were nervous about that as well. So that, that was one thing that really stood out to me. Yeah, I think that the thing about it is I, I think that makes sense because black men feel that they're more endangered, uh, they're, they're, they're the, um, the risks for them yeah. are higher, of course, with all of this. And you you did have, I, I thought it was a, a great quote from someone, um, when it, someone talking about um, the ice cream cone. Talk a little bit about that quote. Did you yes, got? yes. Uh, so one resident I spoke to, the longtime activist and a reverend uh, there, Zach Light, you know, he essentially said that he's worried that with all everyone coming in droves to the city and talking about the case that when something good does happen, you know, they're going to leave. Um, and he really also wanted to emphasize that there's still work to do in Brunswick beyond uh, the McMichaels and the Bryan case. Um, I know they're in the middle of the mayoral race. Um, they're hoping that who the candidate that is chosen can kind of build up some upward mobility in the city um, of Brunswick. And I know that they're also hoping that there's more accountability for um, officers in the Glen County Police Department. Um, but he just would like for the media focus not just to be on the dark cloud that is the Maude Arbery killing, but to also focus on the community efforts that residents are doing. Um, one that I can think of off the top of my head is a better Glen. Uh, they're a grassroots organization that pulled their resources together to try and hold things such as a mayoral candidate forum um, to advocate for black, black, more black businesses in the community um, and to talk about how they've helped hold their um, police department accountable. Um, so those are some of the things that I know that he wishes, you know, for us to kind of zero in on more beyond the trial as well. Yeah. And Patricia, this is one the rest of the country, the state, the country, they're all looking at it. And I, it occurs to me the focus on the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race riots is keeping the focus um, in this country on race issues. Um, do you think that will have an effect on the trial or how people will be looking toward the trial in terms of the way we did with uh, the, Chauvin, the Chauvin case in Minneapolis? You know, I think the facts of the Ahmad Arbery murder alone are really going to continue to capture national attention, um, along with everything that's happening in the country, um, particularly the video um, that really sort of blew this case open and really brought a national spotlight to the fact that uh, this murder occurred in broad daylight, a man literally hunted down by two um, by two white men, uh, videoed by a third, um, and it still had not had charges pressed until the video was released. And so um, the effect that this has had, uh, um, even in the state, has been um, very, very significant. Even before the trial gets underway, um, the state legislature last year immediately passed a hate crime statute in the state. Georgia was one of um, the last states to pass a hate crime statute. 
Um, that same group of lawmakers um, this year, there's a bipartisan group, very united in this effort, um, then went forward and repealed the state citizens arrest statute, which has been on the books since the 1800s. Um, and that was a big piece of the defense of uh, the McMichaels locally was to say, oh, um, they were making a citizen's arrest. And that was an excuse that was um, accepted by local prosecutors. Um, and that is a huge red flag and was a red flag for lawmakers in Atlanta to say, this should not even be on the books if this is how it's being used without people's knowledge. Um, I think the attorney general's race in the state, we're going to hear a lot about this case. Um, social and criminal justice reform I think has really taken on um, a completely different tenor, um, really since the George Floyd case, but then for the Ahmaud Arbery case to be happening locally, it really drives home to Georgia voters how crucial the attorney general's races are, the district attorney's races. Um, they've already had, they have a new DA down there in Brunswick, I think because of this case. And so I think we're, we will see a totally different focus on um, not just um, policing, but law enforcement and prosecutors um, going forward. And the Ahmaud Arbery case has really been the wake-up call, I think, for voters in that area. Yeah, and that and the overall increase in the crime rate everywhere. Absolutely. I, I think that's yeah. that's part of it, too. Uh, Karen, I wanted to get to a little a little bit of the, um, as the, the trial for the McMichaels and William Roddy Bryan is in October, and we're, we're expecting maybe, you know, it's been about two weeks since the defense attorneys um, were arguing against bringing up any past run-ins with the law that um, Ahmaud Aubrey may have had. So we're likely to hear more about that. And, and there's some other issues that the, um, that the prosecutors were, were pushing for, too. So what, what do you think that this is going to, how do you think this is going to all play out in terms of as people look at 2 October and this trial in particular? Well, I think that in you know any context like this of a criminal trial, we have to remember both the prosecution has to put their side out and then the defense is going to make that necessary uh, case for their client. I mean, that's what our constitutional system provides for, that you have these two parties, you know, coming together in a court to find the truth. Um, I think it will be difficult. The defense, I mean, this is a nationalized case. It's not just something small. So everyone's eyes will be turning towards the coast. I think part of this will also be, which we kind of see, well, we did see in the George Floyd afterward, which is, was there bias in the jury selection and in the location? I wonder if these type of questions are going to emerge and those motions will be made to have it from the defense, particularly to have the trial move to another part. But in this, you know, the time we are, the headlines we have, moving it, will you really even get an unbiased jury anywhere? It's difficult, right? I mean, and people, when they are called for jury duty, they have, you know, their own reasons of what they think is going to be presented. And it's very difficult, but that's the, the piece and the beauty, I feel like, of our justice system is we have attorneys who work hard to make sure justice is served and they find those right jurors. But, you know, to, to think about what Patricia said, I think this case, all the motions, different things will show citizens much more about our criminal justice system and the politics around so many of this, um, these offices, right? Like our DAs are elected. Our mayors will be running and they have to deal with these criminal 
um, elements and things that are going on in our cities with rising crime rates and, and all of that. And I think that that's what will play out to in the headlines is the the politics of races going on, electoral races and elective offices at play alongside these trial issues and other bigger, you know, racial discussion issues. Yeah, absolutely. Patricia? I'm sorry, Raisa, I, I think, uh, Raisa, I, because this is from your area, I wanted you to comment a little bit, because one of the things that we were hearing about, the judge will look at, is whether or not Aubrey's mental health records will be permitted to, um, that, that the jury will hear about them. Uh, that the, A lot of people are pretty upset about that, and, and some of the people you spoke with. Yes. Um, one woman put it uh, succinctly. She said that she felt like it was a waste of time and that, you know, people need to remember that Ahmaud Arbery was the victim here. Um, I'm not sure how frequently, um, I'm not sure how that would come into the decision on, you know, why the McMichaels decided to chase him down and shoot him um, per the video that was filmed. I'm not sure that um, I'm not, I think that they would have to really truly build a case beyond incidents that happened well over two years ago. Um, I think that a judge will probably see through that. He has not made uh, his decision on that just yet, but I think that a judge might be able to see through that. Um, but it does remind um, people of endless situations where you've had the victim on trial for his own uh, or her own murder. Um, I think that for this to have been a long, drawn-out case, when you think about it, this happened February 2020. Um, Here we are, June 2021, and there is a a trial that's set in October. Um, It would be, I would be surprised if it's allowed to be used in court. Um, and, you know, if that would sway a juror or any jury, um, because, I mean, you still have video evidence of what happened um, that day in, in February. I will say this, one person that I did speak with is curious to know what the full video looks like. Um, in similar fashion, when we saw the George Floyd trial, we knew that it was longer than eight minutes that um, Derek Chauvin had his neck pressed against George Floyd's, um, sorry, had his knee pressed against George Floyd's neck. He knew that it was uh, above nine. So it, I'm curious to see what other video footage is out there and what kind of picture that will paint for jurors come October. Yeah. Um, the whole um, the area of the mental health records, I think, will um, I think is resonating a lot of with people because of what we've just gone through with the pandemic and the discussions about mental health that have come up everywhere. I mean, we're talking about it with the tennis player now, you know, so I think people are concerned about those kinds of issues being allowed to um, be, be public. So it'll be interesting. We'll be waiting to see what happens when it comes to that. Let's uh, switch gears a little bit. I want to talk a, a, a little bit about something that happened last week where all six Republicans in the Senate voted against legislation creating a commission to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, Patricia. Um, the, how is this playing out in terms of what we're expecting in this um, this campaign season? How do you think it'll play out? 
So I think um, just like everything over the last um, couple of years, um, this issue, uh, the, the attack on the Capitol has become extremely politicized. And so we're seeing even um, members who were inside the chambers as they were getting um, breached by rioters um, voting against having this January 6th commission. Um, Republicans said they feel like this was um, not going to be a fair investigation. It was not going to be um, un, uh, unbiased commission, uh, that there would be an attempt to link conservative groups to um, to the riot and the insurrection, um, many refusing to call it an insurrection. Um, and I think uh, it is uh, really a shame. I think we need to know specifically um, sooner than we'll get the kind of details that we will get from the FBI, because the FBI has prosecuted hundreds of people related to um, related to uh, the insurrection. Um, it would be very helpful to have a full airing of, of how this happened. Um, what else do we not know about what into the planning of this, um, the execution of it? Um, who was responsible? Was it spontaneous? Was it um, done well in advance. All of these are just hugely important questions. Um, and it looks like it won't be done um, inside Congress, um, even though there was, of course, a September 11th commission. Um, there have been a number of independent commissions or bipartisan commissions investigating what were seen to be threats against the country. Um, but for the first time, I think we're seeing that there is not an agreement on what is the threat against the country. Um, and that's that's the, the root of the problem here. Karen? So, and I would say that, you know, interesting, and Patricia made this comment, there have been bipartisan committees, like the 9-11 the Commission that was set up. And then that was very clear as a nation. We were very united after that, right? Because we witnessed foreign terrorists hurt America. And in this instance, it seems there, if you were sitting at home watching television on January 6th, you felt like an attack on your country again. It was clear and present right there, a dangerous situation. And I think for Republicans to ignore that is not, it's very short-sighted. They are not thinking long-term. And I think part of it too is like, they had a member of Congress sitting for the negotiation with House members about what this commission would look like. They could have made it work. But again, I think the Republican, it is showing the internal struggle within the Republican party about where they wanna see things go. I think in this case too, there are committees within um, the House and Senate that are looking at this um, insurrection and trying to learn more about it, but it is not a standalone commission with other authority to actually dig deeper in and find out information. And it will become much, I think, what the committees put out will seem very partisan. It will not seem bipartisan. And that's a shame when, as a, as the nation, we need to know more about really what happened, as Patricia said, and not make it be partisan. As citizens, this should not be a concern down to one you know, area of a political spectrum you're on. This should be as a nation, we wanna know what's happening. Why would our citizens want to go to this extreme to you know, storm the Capitol? Yeah, and I think we're going, this too will play 
a lot in the uh, the political um, the next few, you know the political campaigns that come up. I think the Democrats are really going to come down hard on this, um, Raisa. I think people are are pretty upset over this. They think that um, you know we've had commissions on other things under um, uh, re- Republican administrations, and now you know especially when we look back on a, a few of the things that we've seen happen in the past, and then this thing this felt like it was so personal for the entire country that we're not going to have anybody looking into it. Yeah, it sends a certain message that there's a certain disregard, in a sense, for human life because, you know, you had people who were storming the Capitol um, and it, it with almost uncertain, almost with the intent on causing physical harm to elected officials. Um, and I just can't understand why you wouldn't want to get to the root cause as to why um, these group of people were very impassioned. Um, and, you know, you know, you think about the division within the Republican Party, and I'm not sure, you know, what they're thinking long term or what even what the short short term is. I just want to know, you know, what is the real thought process behind this? Is it to protect a certain base that could potentially grow down the line. Um, I don't know if this does anything for them short term, considering you'll still have uh, midterm elections. Um, and I, maybe they're thinking about that. Maybe that's what they're thinking um, in the short term, midterm elections. But I just can't think of, you know, I can't hypothesize why you wouldn't want to investigate this even further. And what message does this really send to uh, Democrats, some whose offices were um, raided, uh, people had items stolen, um, you know, there were online threats already made against them. Um, it's almost as if deciding not to hold this independent com- uh, commission enables this even more. It says that what, what, ha- what happened was okay. Um, beyond what the FBI has already found. It sends a very clear message that this could potentially happen again. I think the they're interested in having this go away, but I don't think it will. Um, yeah. We're going to wrap that and come back and talk about a few things. We have to get to our final break. And so stick around and we'll be right back with more Political Rewind. We're back with more Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, host of GPB's Lawmakers, standing in for Bill Nygut. Our panel today is Patricia Murphy. She's a political reporter and columnist with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Raisa Habersham is a watchdog and investigative reporter with Savannah Morning News. And Dr. Karen Owen, professor of political science at the University of West Georgia. So, Patricia, I want to get into something that was in the paper today and in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about Major League Baseball being sued over the All-Star game. Let's talk about the politics of that. Yeah, so a group called the Job Creators Network is suing Major League Baseball for $100 million uh, that they say Major League Baseball has cost um, the city of Atlanta by pulling the all-star game out of the city. Technically, it was actually pulled out of Cobb County, um, but they're speaking on behalf of Atlanta. Um, they're also suing for $1 billion in punitive damages um, from Major League Baseball. Um, I think the the billion-dollar figure gives you a sense that this is more about messaging than actually suing for 
$100 million to come back to the city. Um, uh, the Job Creators Network is a conservative, they're a uh, conservative group. Um, they were very supportive of uh, SB 202, the state's election reform bill. And um, when it passed and uh, companies like Coke and Delta uh, spoke out against it, the Job Creators Network put out statements about woke corporations and um, their unwillingness to support election integrity. So I think that gives you the perspective that they are coming from um, with this lawsuit. Um, when the AJC conducted a poll about um, about a lot of political things, but it happened to be right as MLB had pulled the All-Star game out. Uh, it was very unpopular for MLB to pull the game out of um, out of Cobb County. And uh, I think it pulled at about a 70% disapproval rating. That's an area Republicans or conservatives rather would just love to mine over and over again. Kevin McCarthy um, came to Cobb County about a month ago to hold a press conference right next to Truist Park, talking about woke corporations um, and election integrity. And so I think it's a message uh, conservatives would like to keep pushing over and over. And I think that's what this is um, mostly about. Yeah. Karen, do you think this will go anywhere? I mean, that you know, I, I, I realize we haven't had the all-star game yet. And so maybe that's part of it, too. But do you think that the, the people that people really care about this issue here in the in the metro Atlanta, Georgia area in, as a whole, and now that it's no longer in the state, now we're no longer going to have the all-star game here. So I think that the lawsuit probably won't grab the attention of most citizens, right? I mean, they're not probably aware of when things are filed, but I do believe that this corporate involvement in politics matters. And I think citizens are paying attention to that, whether you're on one side of the aisle or the other side, right? This affects you want either the corporations to be supporting how you believe or you want them completely out of politics in maybe many ways. I think that the idea that Major League Baseball pulled out over this one bill really will drive, as Patricia mentioned, the Republicans to talk about it. And I think the Democrats are going to have to also have a message about how it did hurt the community, that this really did affect citizens and that, you know, we can have political debate and issues arise. But when you come back and you're hurting people's livelihoods, you've got to have a message on each side what that matters and, and what you will do to ensure that you're protecting that. Uh, livelihood of the citizens. So I think it does matter. I think when it plays out in Colorado this summer, you're going to see more discussions coming. Why was it moved to Colorado, right? And 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 how are they any better off than Georgians? And and the debate continues because we're seeing the te- like the headline on NPR was Texas, right? They're looking at voting laws. So it's a continual discussion on this political issue. And both sides are going to drive it through messaging to the voters, really, to get voters turned out to support them. Yeah. So the the big th- the big draw is that the the uh, voting issues, right? And you mentioned it. Texas uh, looked to be maybe the third state, as I understand it, to pass this wide ranging bill that limits voting. So, Raisha, Raisha, I wonder if there is. Um, if you're thinking that we're going to, you know, what's happening in Texas, this is just part of this momentum that the Republican Party is building when it comes to this issue over um, voting rights laws. Sure. Um, I think to Karen's point, you know, the question about why uh, the author game was moved to Colorado sends a message of voting rights law in itself. I think Colorado has less restrictive uh, voting rights laws there, um, among other things, you know, the recreational activity there. 
Um, I think what we've seen so far among the Republican base um, is this attempt to um, further laws. Um, the Savannah Morning News did a voting uh, project series, and one story I wrote focused on how a lot of times when uh, black and brown people get um, groundswell and are turning out in numbers to vote, you see the turning back of or the restriction of voting laws in the state of Georgia. Um, and we're seeing it here in real time. I think what saved, um, what kept Texas from turning the corner was, were their, was their Democratic base. Um, and I think you'll kind of see that play out over the next few years, um, like I said, as we head into midterms. And then I know here, particularly in Georgia, next year we have a gubernatorial race. So I think you'll kind of see how that plays out um, long term over the next two uh, to four years. Yeah, Patricia, I thought it was interesting that the Democrats took a tactic. I, I, I had to think about whether Georgia could have done this, but the Democrats walked out. They they had the, the uh, a rule that allowed them to walk out so that the measure couldn't pass. Patricia? I'm so sorry. That's how, okay. how could I be on mute all these all these months later? <laughs> um, yes, the Democrats um, physically left the Capitol so that there would not be a quorum to take a vote on this measure. Um, and uh, but Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who's a Republican, said not so fast. This is going to be on the next legislative session. They will have a special session later this year. Um, and if not, then it'll be on the next leg legislative session. So he's basically saying you can run, but you can't hide. Um, Texas is pretty famous for lawmakers being on the lam trying not to vote for bills. And so uh, this could escalate further. Uh, the days of Tom DeLay certainly saw lawmakers on airplanes hiding away so they didn't have to vote on certain measures. Um, but it's a, it's a really serious issue. And I think the Democrats know they don't have the votes but they could at least push their message um, in the meantime. Yeah, they tried something different and it worked at least temporarily, at least and it grabbed a lot of attention. I want to stick with you, Patricia, really quickly because your former colleague, Jim um, Galloway, on what he did yesterday, this, this piece that he does every year on Memorial Day dealing with his family. And in particular, he talked about this woodworking project that, that his grandfather did with his sons. And he... The one interesting part about it has to do with them uh, talking about he put the start of the war, but he didn't put the end of the war and kind of left it blank. And it, it, I think it's kind of interesting that it it kind of tells us that that's the way war is. It, they don't seem to end, certainly with what we're dealing with when it comes to Afghanistan right now. Yeah. So Jim Galloway's uh father served in World War II. And Jim has a beautiful column called Going Home. And I hope that everybody will go to the AJC. When I started my job as the political insider columnist, I had so many readers say, welcome aboard. Please publish Jim Galloway's column on Memorial Day. And so we did it for our readers. And I hope people will take a look at it. It's really special. That's all the time for Political Rewind. It always goes so, so fast. I want to thank Dr. Karen Owen, Raisa Habersham, and Patricia Murphy, and tune in again tomorrow for the latest in Georgia politics. And thanks to producer Sam Bermastas and senior producer Amelia Brock and engineer Jesse Neiswauer for their work. Thank you. <laughs>